Welcome to Practical Christian Living. There is a way we can tell whether or not our faith is genuine, and that is by our fruit. The Bible says we will know them by their fruit. And if we say, I love God and I'm living for Him, and you don't live for God, and you hate and you're angry and you're bitter and you're cold and you're selfish and you're living for yourself, then that is proof eventually that you don't have genuine faith. The book of 2 Timothy is perhaps the Apostle Paul's most passionate letter he wrote because it was his last, written just a short time before he died in the name of Christ. If you are in need of encouragement in the midst of difficulties and trials, it is our prayer that these reminders in 2 Timothy would help you to stand strong and hold on to your faith. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, we want to thank you. Lord, we really do love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our family, for this body. We pray that you would continue to knit our hearts together. Help us to get to know one another, to love one another, to interact with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Thank you for all you have been doing among us. And as we consider Paul's letter to Timothy now, we pray that we would have a heart for one another as they had a heart for each other. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. When Paul was in his early 30s, he was on his second missionary journey and he made his way through Asia Minor, which would be modern day Turkey today. And he met a young man by the name of Timothy. Timothy was, his mother was uh, Jewish. His father was Greek. And uh, he brought Timothy with him. And from then on, for the next 15 years, Timothy either traveled with Paul or was sent out by Paul to do the work that God had called him to do. And then as Paul made his way to Rome, he sent Titus to Crete and he sent Timothy to Ephesus. And he encouraged Timothy, and we saw it in the first book, you remember, in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, stay in Ephesus. Why would he say Timothy stay in Ephesus? Because Timothy wanted to leave Ephesus. There were difficulties and there were hardships. There were perils. Uh, there were false teachers. There were men that raised themselves up in the body. And Timothy was a little bit timid. Timothy was, was kind of that soft-hearted kind of a guy. And he didn't handle confrontation well. There's some leaders that handle it real well. There's some leaders that are like, like men's men. There's a Calvary Chapel pastor by the name of Ken Graves. You guys familiar with him? You men might be. He does a lot of uh, men's conferences. And he's the kind of guy that when he, does his, when he does his men's conferences, I did one with him. Actually, I did an event called Man Up in Lake Havasu City where I spoke and then Ken Graves spoke after me. And um, I said a couple things about him later. I think he wanted to snap me in half and could if you wanted to. But Ken Graves will say things like, yeah, serve Jesus. Just stop being a sissy and start serving him, right? As you guys have seen, don't tell him I said anything about him, by the way. <laughs> Ken is uh, always trying to encourage men to be men, to step up and do what you're supposed to do. But then there's always those guys that when you yell at them like that, kind of cry. They kind of whimper a little bit. 
And God not only calls manly men to follow him, God calls soft-hearted men as well. God calls tender-hearted men. And there's a good combination between those who are a little bit more bold, a little straightforward, like Paul. Paul was that kind of guy. Paul never minded stepping up and dealing with an issue. Paul, in his letters, he wasn't real tender-hearted when he wrote his letters. John, the beloved, John, the apostle John, was very tender in his letters, first and second John especially. He pleads with them. He loves them. He calls them beloved all the time. Uh, he tells them how much he loves them. He's that kind of a guy. Paul's not that kind of a guy. Paul's the kind that when he wrote his letters, you could just sense he was cooking. He just in thought and go again. And that was Paul. Paul was that kind of straightforward guy. And, and Paul has been teamed up with Timothy, who's more tenderhearted. Now, Paul has gone through his three missionary journeys. He has been arrested and brought to Rome. He has stood before Caesar Nero. Nero is the emperor that began the persecution of the early church. Starting with Nero, there would be over 300 years, 6 million Christians who would die for their faith. It is said that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Whether or not he fiddled while Rome burned, he was happy that Rome had burned. Whether or not he caused it, um, historians differ on that, but he was happy it burned because he was a builder and he wanted to rebuild Rome. And uh, when Rome began to get angry at Nero because he was obviously pleased with this fire and rumors began to spread that he sent his men out to light other portions of the town on fire when it caught on fire, he then began to blame the Christians. He needed a scapegoat and he began to blame the Christians for it. The Christians love fire and they love light and they got these weird blood ceremonies and they're always talking about love and they were odd compared to the, the, the pagan Roman world. And so he began to persecute the church. A lot of people connect up when Nero began to persecute when Paul stood before him. Paul goes through 25, 30 years of of going out and starting churches and faithfully doing the work of the gospel and traveling and caring and doing all that he's supposed to do. He's then arrested and he is released. Some believe that he went to Spain. We know that he went to Europe and he brought the gospel again to several other places. He was then rearrested and he was thrown back in prison in Rome. When he was in Rome the first time, he was under house arrest. The second time that they arrested him, they threw him in the dungeon. They threw him in the deep, dark, dank dungeon. And there he wrote the letter of 2 Timothy. It was from that place, imprisoned for his faith, imprisoned for sharing Christ everywhere that he would had went. And what Paul kind of knew, but didn't really know, what Paul sensed, you can tell by what he writes in this letter, is that this would be the last letter that he would ever write. In fact, 2 Timothy is called the dying letter. It is the letter that he wrote before he was beheaded. He would stand before Nero again and Nero would sentence him to death and they would take Paul outside of the Roman city and they would take his head off of him. Some believe that it was only a few days after he wrote this letter. What we do know is that it could have only have been a couple of months, probably just a few weeks after he wrote this letter that Paul's life was taken from him. And there's no doubt as he writes this, he's hopeful that Timothy's going to get there to him. He knows he's in prison for the long haul this time 
because he writes to Timothy and he says, I need you to come before winter and I need you to bring my coat. He's down in that prison cell and it's cold already and he knows it's going to get colder. And so he says, bring my coat with you, bring my parchments, bring my books. He needed something to do while he's there in prison. And it's out there in that setting, in that dungeon, that he sits down and he pins a letter to a close friend, a beloved son, as he calls him. And it's interesting, Paul's a little more tender in this letter, but I think we understand that. Some have declared that, you know, there's always people who will question whether or not the authors of the Bible wrote the portions of the Bible. And you gotta know that by far, the theologians and scholars say Paul wrote the books that are attributed to him in the Bible. There's only a few that come and say that he didn't. But a lot of times you'll hear of those that say that he didn't. And here's their reasoning. Well, he's a little bit more sappy in 2 Timothy than he is in 1 Timothy. He's in a dungeon. You'd probably write letters more sappy as well if you knew you were coming to the end of your life. Doesn't mean it was a different person that wrote it. It meant it was written under different circumstances. And so the tone of the letter is different. And so he writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. He starts off his letter as much of the Paulinian letters are started. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. It is God who calls us. It is God who empowers us. It is God who places us. And we do what we do by his will. Paul knew that. He's not an apostle because men have voted him into being an apostle. He's an apostle because God has called him to be. And then he says to Timothy, a beloved son. And right here, we get a little different than, than other letters. Paul starts off not with the normal apostle authority, but he starts off beloved son. The word beloved there is a very tender word. A word that Paul doesn't use a lot in his writings. He already gets tender with him to Timothy, a beloved son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, this is typical Paulinian introduction, but he adds mercy. Grace and peace is usually how Paul begins them. But in this one, he adds mercy. He seems to become more merciful as he gets older. That kind of the way things go anyway, isn't it? You know, we have our first child and we're pretty hard on them. By the time our third or fourth or fifth child comes along, we don't even care. <laughs> and by the time we're a grandparent, we just want to spoil them, right? We do, well, don't be too hard on them, we'll say. And your kid will look at you and go, are you the same person that raised me? I mean, don't be too hard on them. Remember how hard you were on me? Paul, as he's facing death, is more merciful. He says in verse three, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. I, I love that term, a sincere conscience or a pure conscience. I serve God with a pure conscience. Are you sincere in your faith? Are you pretending? Are you sincere in your relationship with Jesus? Or, or somehow are you just letting people around you think that you are when you're really not. No good ever comes from pretending. No good ever comes from hypocrisy. Acting one way and really being another. I really think that we got to have a pure heart, pure and a sincere faith, pouring everything out to God, 
living for him with everything that we have. And he says, I have a pure conscience and I serve him with a pure conscience. And then he says, I remember you in my prayers night and day. Now that's how Paul ministers. They can lock you away, but they can't stop you from affecting the lives of the people that you know, because they can't stop you from praying. No matter what they do to you, they cannot stop you from calling out to God for those whom you love. And so he says, God's my witness. Day and night I pray for you, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears. Paul is moved by Timothy's tears when he had left him. And he says that I might be filled with joy. Paul's in this dungeon. And he thinks of his friend and he wants to see him. He remembers his tears and he wants to be filled with joy by seeing him. He says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith, again, note genuine faith. He knew that Timothy's faith was genuine. There is among Christians a genuine faith and there is a pretend faith. And how do we know whether or not you have a genuine faith or a pretend faith? Well, God has given me a gift. <laughs> and by looking out over the body, I can tell who's genuine and who's not. So I'm going to point you out. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you whether it's genuine or not when I'm pointing. I'm just going to have you stand. And then I'll tell you afterwards whether you're genuine or not. I'm not doing that, right? Nobody really had fear. Did anybody really fear that I was going to start pointing people out? You, stand up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll give you a startle. Oh, what? <laughs> However, there is a way we can tell whether or not our faith is genuine. And that is by our fruit. The Bible says we will know them by their fruit. And if we say, I love God and I'm living for him and you don't live for God, and you hate and you're angry and you're bitter and you're cold and you're selfish and you're living for yourself, then that is proof eventually that you don't have genuine faith. Paul knew Timothy and because Paul knew Timothy, he was able to speak of the genuine faith that he had. May you have genuine faith. And if somehow you have been pretending and not living by genuine faith, may God touch your heart today that you would live for him with all genuineness. He says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, and note this, which first was in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is also in you. He says, the faith that you have, Timothy, was passed down to your mother from your grandmother. It has been said that faith is better caught than taught. People see Christ in you and they learn from you. There is no better there's nothing better than we can do for our children than to live Christ in front of them. You can talk all you want to talk, but if your life doesn't match your words, your kids will only be embittered towards you in the end. But if they see Christ in you, if they see your faith, if they see the genuineness, if they see the sincerity, then they are going to come to Christ eventually. The Bible says, raise a child in the ways of the Lord, and when they are old, they will not depart. Just pour Christ into your children and live Christ in front of them. By the way, that's much broader as well. We live Christ in front of those who are lost and perishing all around us. And as we live Christ in front of them, they will see Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
You may be mocked for being a Christian. You may be laughed at for being a Christian. But at least in our day, that's about where it ends. We're la laughed at, we're mocked, but they were being killed for their faith. As I said, the persecution had just started. Paul is about to be beheaded, and that's part of this persecution that comes from Nero. Nero would dip Christians in wax, hang them upside down, and light them on fire in his garden. It is said that Nero would put light thousands of Christians on fire and then ride his chariot naked through the garden like some kind of, of madman. The faith that Timothy had had that had come down from his parents was now in him and the faith that we have can be passed on to the people that are around us. He says, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. They had laid hands on Timothy and they had prayed for him and they had asked God that he would gift him. Timothy, no doubt, was a gifted teacher. Timothy, no doubt, was gifted in some other areas. I don't know whether he had the gift of discernment. I don't know whether he had the gift of prophecy. I don't know whether he had the gift of evangelism, the gift of teaching. He probably had because he was a pastor, because he was a teacher. He probably had the gift of evangelism. But there were some gifts that Timothy had that he was letting lie dormant. If we don't use the gifts that God's given us, then they lie dormant and need to be stirred up. We need to, in boldness, use the gifts that God has given us. He goes on to say, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Why is it that we would let a gift that we have received lie dormant? If you have the gift of evangelism or you have the gift of prophecy, what would it be that would cause that to lie dormant? Because you're afraid. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, he goes on to say. You're afraid. I, I can't go and tell that person, hey, I believe God gave me a message for you. What if they don't believe me? What if they reject it? What if they laugh at me? I can't go tell that person about Christ, but yet you have the gift of evangelism. The gift of evangelism is an interesting gift because all kinds of different people get it. People that you think wouldn't, in ways that wouldn't normally work. Raul Reese has the gift of evangelism. In 1986, 85, we did something called the Past, Present, and Future. It was our, our own kind of a conference thing. And um, it was three nights in a row. Skip Heitzig, Raul, and myself did the teaching. We had Phil Keggy and uh, trying to remember the other musicians that we had back then. Um, I think we might have had, uh, anyway, we had uh, some of you guys who go, who? Anyway, who? Who's Phil Keggy? Who? Who are they? Um, and Raul, we, um, Skip did the past, I did the present, and Raul did, no, I did the future, and Raul did the present. So Raul was supposed to give an altar call. That's what the present was. Skip kind of did the past. It was an evolution creationist kind of thing. I kind of did a prophecy thing. And, um, and Raul did the present. So Raul gets up and we're at the music hall. And Raul gets up and says, you Christians. Remember, we've all invited people out. This is the evangelical night of our past, present, and future. And he says, you Christians are stinking and stagnant and awful. And for the next 45 minutes, he hammers Christians. He just hammers them how horrible you are. You're not doing what God told you to do. And I mean, Rawl, when Rawl gets off the hook like that, he gets off the hook. I'm telling you, he goes. And, and we're all there and you feel bad and you want to repent. And, and, and Rawl's going to town. And this, so then Rawl says, I now want to give you an opportunity to get saved. So now he gives an altar call. Well, the people that have been invited have been now heard Christians thrashed for 45 minutes. And then Rawl gives the altar call 
200 people come forward. And and that's the gift of evangelism. That's not how I would do it. But God does what God does, and God uses whom God uses. God uses a Greg Laurie, and God uses a Raul Reese, and people come to Christ. And if you have the gift, you might think, I'm not the kind of person to be used. Well, Timothy might not be the typical senior pastor, but he was the one God chose. He was the, had the gifts in him and he wanted them to be stirred up. He was a little fearful. And so Paul says, God hasn't given you the spirit of fear, but the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus that God became a man, came to the cross, died on it so that people could be saved. And don't be ashamed of your own testimony either, by the way. Tell your testimony often. Let people know about it. Some of you guys have incredible testimonies. Some of you guys, you were brought to the brink. Some of you were brought to the, to the, the, the uh, doorstep of death before God called you. There are some Calvary Chapel pastors and their te- talk about off the hook. Their testimonies are something. I have a friend of mine, he's a good friend, who's a Calvary Chapel pastor, and he was a leg breaker for a drug dealer before he came to Christ. And now he's sharing the gospel every week. And his testimony rocks. It's awesome. My testimony, not so much. You have a testimony, I was a leg breaker for a drug dealer. I ran a strip club. And then there's me. Oh, I went to church my whole life. (laughs) Thought going to church would save me, but somebody told me I needed to invite Jesus in, so I did and I got saved. It's not a very dramatic testimony. But I'll tell you what, every time I share it, it's moving and it's powerful. Because our testimonies are powerful. Don't be ashamed of your testimony. Do your kids know your testimony? Man, you know, we, the, the, the testimonies we could tell, the ways we came to Christ, the things God did to bring us in. And listen, you don't need to lie about your testimony, okay? Don't go out and embellish it and make it sound like you were a whole lot worse than you really were. Just be honest about how you came to Christ. There's something powerful in that. The Bible says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. By the blood of the lamb, not because you know, somebody read that verse and began to plead the blood. You guys ever heard that? When you have some, some, somebody has a demonic thing going on in their life, so somebody else pleads the blood over them. The first time I ever saw somebody plead the blood, um, it was so bizarre. I was shocked by it. Uh, at one place, they used to growl over people and called it pleading the blood. Literally, rad, 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 rad. You know, what are you doing? I'm pleading the blood. Okay. Another place I was at, and this is more common, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood. They chant that. They just got this poor guy that's having some demonic activity in his life. They got him in a chair. I plead the blood, 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 I plead the blood over that guy. It's not what that verse is saying. It says, we overcome him by the power of the blood because the power of the blood forgave you your sins. And that set you free from Satan. If you have been forgiven, if all of your sins are forgiven and you are clean and holy and pure before God, what can Satan do to you? You have overcome him by the power of the blood and by the word of your testimony. Spiritual warfare is telling our testimony 
Let people know. Tell your testimony often. Learn how to tell your testimony. And there's something powerful to it. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you. And His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.